0: Good morning, Lakeside family. It is good that we are able to meet together in this way again. Hopefully, this will just be a short season of meeting online in this way, and we'll be back together again in the building uh, by the end of January or early February. That would be fantastic. But for now, we are again online. And so I just welcome you and thank you for joining us, uh, whether you're new or have been here and been part of our family for many years Uh, we are glad to have you and uh, I'm just coming back after a a week of vacation and a couple of Sundays break and uh, it was good to have a break at the end of the year had good time with family had good time over Christmas Um, but at the same time I know that it's been difficult for many and uh, in a year like this and going into 2021 it's a year when we need hope And I hope as we look into the word today, that hope will come to us afresh. Um, We're going to start the new year by returning to the Gospel of Matthew. This is a series that we started a long time ago. We actually started it in 2019 and we uh, preached through Matthew and and went through Matthew and experienced it uh, through last fall in the spring in the summer. And we took a break, we took a little break just to explore some specific themes in October through December, but now we're returning to Matthew again. And I just wanna give you a bit of a reminder of where we left off in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus had finally pressed his disciples with the question, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And with Peter asserting that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus declared he would build his church and he would build his church in enemy-occupied territory in this world that we live in that is hostile to it and that he would build it with people called out of the world by the good news of his gospel that we are living stones that are built up and form the church. And the important context to take away from that is we move from chapter 16 now into chapter 17 of Matthew is that this represents a shift in the narrative of Matthew and a shift in the ministry and teaching of Jesus. Now that Jesus has affirmed what what Peter has declared, now that Jesus has affirmed that he is the Messiah, his ministry and thus the narrative of the Gospel of Matthew becomes focused on the cross. Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He is the suffering servant. He is the sacrificial lamb. His purpose is to go to the cross. And we begin to now see in the Gospel of Matthew this shift in emphasis, focusing on Jerusalem, focusing on the cross, focusing on his death, and the training and the teaching that he needs to do with his disciples in order to prepare them for that. And so, With that context in mind we now move into Matthew chapter 17 and we have recorded for us right on the heels of Jesus's acceptance of the title of Messiah another revelation now that permits Peter James and John to see and what they see is what is known as the transfiguration or the transformation of Jesus. Chapter 17, verses 1 to 9, describe an incredibly unique night of prayer that results in an encounter that Peter, James, and John will obviously never forget. Nothing like this has happened before in the life of Jesus, or at least that he has allowed his disciples or anyone else to see, and it never happens this way again. So, what do we make of this event at the beginning of Matthew chapter 17? What is happening? What is taking place? What do the disciples see? Why are the disciples present for this? And what does it offer to us? Well, I think as we carefully read it and experience and learn from it in Matthew's Gospel, we'll find that the Transfiguration offers the disciples and then by extension us, exactly the kind of kingdom hope that we need, even today as we go into a new year that is full of uncertainty. At a time when the world around us and our very own bodies feel vulnerable, perhaps as they have never felt before, The transfiguration of Jesus points us towards another kingdom. It points us towards a future reality. It points us towards a certain promise that shines through and eclipses the uncertainty that we face today. So let's just look at Matthew 17 and see what we can experience and from the experience what we can learn from the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And I'll just pray before we read God's Word and ask the Holy Spirit to help us in unpacking it and applying it to our lives. Father God, we read your Word now and we ask your Holy Spirit, even as I have just said, to open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to what it is that you would teach us. Father, perhaps especially in this particular text... We also don't want to get too caught up in what does this mean for me and how do I apply it to me and what does it mean for my life and what can I get out of this? You intend rich things for us, there is no doubt in this text, but a good portion of this experience is to simply read the text and behold Jesus, to see him, to see you, and simply allow ourselves to see our God and our Creator, and our Savior. And so, Father, I pray for that for each of us, first and foremost, that we would just see you. And then, as your Holy Spirit leads us, that you would help us to unpack and understand what this means, what it means in terms of an indication of your love and your plan for us, and how we should respond. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 17:1. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is God's word. It's an incredible text. It's a text which is actually all, all texts in the Bible we come to with reverence, but this one especially is so unique and Jesus is revealed in such a different way that it's sometimes difficult to wonder how to even approach it. And so as I was reading through this, I was thinking, what is it, especially now, that God wants to show us through Jesus essentially pulling back the curtain a little bit to show his disciples this, to, to show us this, to have it recorded for us. And there's four things that I want to look at, and, and the first one is, is that the transfiguration becomes an important witness or testimony to the singular identity and nature of Jesus. This is important for the disciples. Verse two says, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Or as the account is recorded in Mark, and Mark is very likely the scribe of Peter, and so this is Peter's version of it, says, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And this is, first of all, the description of his godly nature. All of his earthly life, Jesus looked like any other man. There was nothing notable about him, the scripture says. He did not appear unusual in any way. His deity, his godness was covered completely by his humanity. But for a very brief time here, Jesus gives the disciples a glimpse of his nature and his identity as the Son of God. Even as Peter had just recently recognized him as such, Jesus says, okay, now let me show you. Jesus had been teaching that the kingdom of God was near at hand. All through Matthew, he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is near, and it is right here at hand. But I don't think the disciples understood how near the kingdom of God really was. Peter had called Jesus the Messiah. They believed him to be the Son of God, but they had not seen him as such. They'd seen him do miracles. They'd heard his teaching, but they hadn't actually witnessed Jesus as the Son of God. So now Jesus gives them the eyes to see what is coming in the new kingdom. He gives these disciples the eyes to see Jesus as he really is. The description of Jesus in his transfiguration is one that prophets had seen and described before, and it's one that John will actually see again later in his life. Daniel 7, 9 says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire prophet Daniel saw Jesus before he was Jesus, but while he was still in the Trinity as the son of God. Or in Psalm 104, it says, blessed the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. So the prophet's had seen and pictured Jesus, had seen the visible form of the Trinity before in these white robes with this shining face. And John is going to see him again in Revelation 1, 13 to 16. It says that he sees the Son of Man standing in the midst of the lampstands. And the hairs on his head were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. We just have over and over and over again in scripture this description of Jesus when he makes himself visible to his people without being fully clothed in humanity, he is shining like the sun. And so we have this description of Jesus' godly nature. And then we have the confirmation, or the witness of who he is. Along with the revelation of Jesus as the Son. comes, the confirmation from the Father. Verse five here says, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so here we have Peter, James, and John getting confirmed again for them from the Father, just like at the baptism, that this is the Son of God. Just as the eyewitness accounts of Jesus are important after his resurrection, so this witness of his deity is going to be important before his death. It's interesting, Peter, who was obviously here and saw this, writing to the church later in his life, says in 2 Peter 1 he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitness of his majesty. You see, this is important to the disciples. This is important to Peter. It's important to John, to James, to the rest of the apostles as well. This is an eyewitness of the deity of Christ. And Peter says, I wasn't We weren't making up myths. We weren't cobbling together some story based on, you know, old traditions. We saw that Jesus was the Son of God. We were eyewitness of his majesty. Or John, who was also there, says in 1 John 1:1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John says, I was there, I saw it, I touched him. I know who He is. The eyewitness accounts of Jesus' miracles, the eyewitness accounts of His nature, the accounts of His death, the accounts of His resurrection, all of these eyewitness accounts were under scrutiny for literally decades of the early church, and the church flourished under that scrutiny. The faith that God asks of us is not blind faith. God does not leave us without knowledge of him, without witnesses of him, without testimony of him, without evidence, without confirmation. And those that trust in him, in the word of his son and his apostles are saved by their faith. First Peter goes on. First Peter 1, 8 and 9. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter says, I get it, right? As he's writing this letter, he says, I've seen it. I witnessed his glory. And me and John and James and the rest of the apostles, we're testifying of what we saw. But I get it that you don't see him. You didn't see him and you don't see him now. Now. But you have faith in this testimony anyway. You have faith in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And through that faith, you obtain the outcome, the salvation of your souls. So as Jesus turns his path towards Jerusalem, he knows what lies ahead for him and for the disciples. He knows the hope and the courage that they will need to face in what is coming. They don't even understand it yet. He says to them after this encounter, he says, don't tell anyone about this until after I am raised from the dead. And they don't understand what that means. They actually question, like, what is Jesus talking about? It says in Mark that they have questions about it, and they're talking to each other. What does he mean when I'm raised from the dead? What's he talking about? But Jesus knows. Jesus knows how important it is for them to see this and for them to be able to then tell others about. Secondly, the transfiguration gave hope to the disciples and to us in understanding what lays in store after death in relationship with Jesus. The text says here, and behold there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. The account that Luke gives says that they also, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glory. So Jesus is asking his disciples to follow him all the way to the cross. He has just told them at the end of chapter 16 that they must pick up their cross and follow him. And six days later, he gives them this vision of the transfiguration. He knows that they will face imprisonment and death to proclaim faith in the Messiah and to build the church in a hostile world. He asks the same of all believers to pick up our cross and follow him. And the hope that is unashamedly held out in scripture for all who believe is glorification. It is eternal life. It is becoming like Christ. Transformation into Christ's likeness. When when Jesus asks us to follow him, he does not say, follow me, and there is nothing at the end. <laughs> God does not ask us for faith and for bearing our cross and for suffering in this world and then say there is no reward. God says, Jesus says, the scripture tells us that there is glorification which we await. There is transformation into Christ's likeness that starts taking place now and is finalized in our glorification after death. That there is a share in the glory of Jesus that begins now, but it's made complete in the eternal life to come. And this is what Jesus shows in his transfiguration. The disciples had never seen this before, not really seen it the way Jesus shows them in the transfiguration. Here the disciples see Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, speaking and talking with Jesus in his glory. The promise is there for them to see of eternal fellowship with him. For thousands of years after their deaths, Moses and Elijah are still fellowshipping with Jesus and that fellowship will go on for eternity. It's a picture of our transfiguration to come. A few decades later, after John witnesses this, right, so John has this etched in his memory, and now decades later, the disciple John is writing a letter to his church, and he writes in 1 John 3, 2-3, he says, "'Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is.'" And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Can you, you can't imagine that John did not have this night on the mountain with Jesus in mind when he wrote that. He says, we don't see him the way he really is. You don't see him the way he really is. But a time is coming and you are going to see Jesus as he really is and you will be transformed into his likeness. We will be like him because we will see him. The Apostle Paul evidently passing on the teaching of John and perhaps Peter or James as well. They're all contemporaries of each other. Paul writes it this way. He he wasn't there that night. He didn't see it, but but he knows he's believed in the witness and the testimony. He says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Paul says there's a way in which we can behold Jesus in a way and be transformed even now from one degree of glory to another. There's a sense in that phrase of it's just a little bit of a time, right? Just one degree at a time. We're slowly being transformed just a little bit right now, but we await and we groan, he says in Romans 8, awaiting our glorification, awaiting our transformation. And Paul elaborates even further on what the disciples learned here in 1 Corinthians 15. He makes the connection directly to the kingdom to come. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown. It goes into the ground in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Then he says in verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we are born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. See, Paul's saying the same thing. We're born into dust, and we bear the image of dust but we are going to, as we are sown into the ground, be resurrected in power and glory and bear the image of the man of heaven. And this is what we see in the transfiguration coming as it did as Jesus was heading to the cross. And as he asked those disciples who follow him to not fear death, but to know that it is simply the way to the glory that awaits us. Thirdly, the transfiguration confirms that Jesus is the means to our freedom from slavery and entry into that promise. The account in Matthew just says that they were speaking. It says that they saw Moses and Elijah and that they were speaking to Jesus, and Matthew is characteristically in a hurry to get his story told. He's (laughs) he's the briefest and the quickest of writers, but Luke The more careful historian in his account gives us a little more detail. In Luke 9, 30 to 31, it says, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Okay, so we do know what they were talking about. The disciples actually overhear this conversation that is going on between Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And they know that he was talking about his departure, which was going to happen in Jerusalem, is what they pick up from what they overhear, that Jesus is going to depart. And specifically, the word that they would have heard there is his exodus. And I'm thinking with Moses present in the conversation, the use of the word exodus is not a coincidence. I mean, this is the point where you just get to the text and you stand back and you just want to, I mean, you want to understand, but you don't even want to try to understand. You don't need to unpack anything here. This is just, you know, Jesus shining like the sun in the radiance of his nature as the Son of God, speaking with Moses and Elijah in a glimpse of the kingdom to come that is right here that we can enter into through faith in Jesus and you could just you just sit there all night and just watch that (laughs) right but it but it's just a it's just a brief glimpse that they give the disciples but but it's just wonderful to consider the full breadth of what that conversation might have been to have Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking about his work on the cross which is to come and talking about that work on the cross as an exodus is marvelous, because think about the exodus and think about Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the sacrifice that satisfies the angel of death and preserves his people. The death of Jesus on the cross will be the means by which our bondage to sin will be broken. He is our exodus from slavery into the freedom of the promised land. Everything about Jesus in his departure on the cross speaks of the exodus of God's people, and everything of the exodus of God's people from Egypt speaks the foreshadowing and the foretelling of the true exodus to come on the cross. And the disciples were told in Mark uh, chapter 9, verse 10, says they didn't understand any of this stuff about his death, so they overheard this conversation and then Jesus says don't tell anybody about what you saw here until after I'm resurrected. And they, they're like I don't, didn't even know you were dying let alone getting resurrected but whatever we won't say anything. And, and they don't understand any of this stuff but afterwards they'd have the knowledge to see exactly who Jesus was and what he was accomplishing. All the pieces of the puzzle would get put together. The exodus of Jesus by the means of the cross to be slain on our behalf was a plan that heaven had from the beginning. Moses prefigured it, rescuing Israel from Egypt. The prophets, like Elijah, spoke of it as it being fulfilled in a Messiah. And now, Jesus is about to accomplish it. So, the transfiguration then confirms that Jesus is the means to our freedom from slavery and entry into the promise. Just as that sacrificial Passover lamb was the means of freedom for the people of Israel and entry into the out of bondage and into promise. And then finally then, the transfiguration establishes the authority of Jesus and the power of his word to save. Verse 5 here in Matthew 17 says, He was still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And again, we see the importance of this event in the lives of the disciples, because years later, Peter makes the connection when writing to the churches that he has helped establish. And I'm certain this event was material for many of Peter's sermons through his life. I mean, if it was me and I had this experience as a pastor, it would be difficult not to keep referring to it more than occasionally. But in 2 Peter, he's, he's writing this letter to these churches, to these Christian friends of his. And he says, we weren't following cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And then he goes on. He says, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, he's talking about this night on the mountain, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, we ourselves heard this very voice, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What? What is Pastor Peter trying to say here (laughs) while he's preaching? He's saying we saw the majesty of Jesus and we heard the confirmation of the Father speaking to Jesus. We heard his voice. And we have the scripture, the prophecy, and it's been confirmed by what we saw in Jesus and what we heard the Father say. So he says, this is is the action item of Peter's little mini-sermon here, You will do well to pay attention to Scripture. Listen to Scripture. Pay attention to it, because it has been fully confirmed by what we have witnessed. Prophecy comes from men carried by the Holy Spirit. Don't just ignore Scripture. It is the Word of God. Jesus even says in Matthew 13, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. You guys who can see me, you guys who can hear me, you're blessed. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So Jesus says, I'm him. I'm the one that all those prophets were talking about, and they would have loved to have heard me and would have loved to have seen me, but blessed are you because you see me. And Peter says, I was blessed to see it. James and John saw it too. I'm not asking you to keep believing in thousand-year-old prophecies that you doubt will ever be fulfilled because I am an eyewitness to that they have been fulfilled. You need to listen to the prophets because the prophets were right. You need to listen to the scripture because it's given by the Holy Spirit of God. And I've seen it right in front of me. God told us on the holy mountain. He said, listen to Jesus. And Jesus showed us how all the scriptures spoke of him. And here's the thing, we can still listen to Jesus today. We can still listen today in scripture. We are able to listen to Jesus as God instructs here in the Bible. It's by listening to him that we have the hope of transfiguration. It's by listening to him that we have the hope of glory. If we listen to anyone besides Jesus, there is no hope in resurrection. There is no hope in transfiguration. There is no hope in glory. If we listen to anyone besides Jesus, the father said, this is my son, listen to him. And Peter says, we were there, we saw it. You gotta not avoid the scripture. You would do well to pay attention. It is the word of God. And so it's by the word of God that there's power for salvation. It's by the word of God that there's power for our own transformation into Christ's likeness as we behold him. And as we are transformed by our beholding of him and we see him and we hear him in scripture. And there's more here that we could go into, but that's probably enough for today. I mean, we could look at how... You know, they fall down terrified, and Jesus touches them. And we could talk about the touch of Jesus, and he says, don't be afraid. And we could talk about the compassion of Jesus. I mean, there's just so much in here that we could look into. But I think we've got enough now for hope, even as Jesus knew the disciples would need hope going into Jerusalem. As his ministry shifts in Matthew now, and we look forward from verse 17 forward, as Jesus physically makes his way to Jerusalem, as he has set his face to Jerusalem, as he has talked about his exodus, his departure with Moses and Elijah, as he, you know, sort of a last minute, you know, two minute warning uh, huddle with the coaches and with with the team And they're talking about this is what's going on. This is the stuff we planned from the beginning. This was the stuff you're a part of. I'm going to Jerusalem. Then we leave the Mount of Transfiguration with the same hope that the disciples have. Jesus allows us to witness the glory of his nature and the nature that we will inherit. We have the confirmation of eyewitnesses. We have the affirmation of the Father to know that Jesus went willingly to his death to be our Passover lamb, to accomplish our exodus from slavery and into promise. The transfiguration is exactly the dose of hope that the disciples needed right when they needed it. And the transfiguration is for each of us, I think, the dose of hope that we need as we still await groaning with all of creation, our own glorification. It's the dose of hope that I needed just getting into 2021. That the corruption of this world, that the weakness of this body, that the apparent hopelessness of the culture and the situation around us is not what is really going on. Our hope is in a risen savior. Our hope is in future glorification. Our hope is that the kingdom is right here at hand and that if we listen to Jesus and trust in his word, that kingdom is ours. Jesus has shown us he is who he says he is. The kingdom of God really is near at hand. The son of God really can set us free. Trust in him. Glory awaits. He will not disappoint. This is the hope. The hope, of this, the hope that the disciples at the transfiguration. This is the hope that we carry right now in these jars of clay. It's the hope that we are ready to explain and to give an account for people who ask us why we have this hope. It's the hope that our families and our friends and our community and our country and the world needs right now. So let the gift of Jesus showing us the transfiguration encourage you to share that hope the way the disciples shared it. Jesus said, don't tell anybody about what you saw here tonight and what you heard. Don't tell anybody until after my resurrection. After I am raised in glory, then tell them that you saw it coming, that I showed you what was coming, that I showed you who I am. Make that a part of your preaching. Make that a part of your teaching. Make that a part of your witness. And Peter and John and James went off of that mountain, and they went out of the resurrection, and they told the world. They told them, this is the glory that awaits. This is the hope that we have. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. And even as we consider just the crazy year that 2020 was and the flipping of the calendar didn't change anything to 2021, this is the hope that we need. Father, we think more personally of things going on in our own families, things in our church family in this community. We think of, of Brian and Diane and the rest of the Plouffe family and the hope that they have in this very thing. That Laura, even now, is transfigured. That she is transformed. That she's experiencing the hope of this glory. Father, there's nothing that we desire more. There's nothing that we want to experience more. And we experience it by listening to your son Jesus, what he teaches, what he said, what he showed us, beholding him in scripture. Father, help us this year to do that. Help us to show our friends and our family that there is nothing more glorious that they can look upon. And at first they will be terrified because there is judgment of sin and rebellion. But Jesus doesn't leave us terrified. He reaches out and touches us and says, don't be afraid. I've come that you not be afraid. I've come to be the sacrificial lamb, to be the atonement, to be the one who pays the price, to set you free from slavery so you can enter into the promise. Father God, help us to make that real for everyone we encounter. In Christ's name, amen.